Hi everyone, Dr. Axe here. I am so excited to introduce you to today's co-host of my show, Naomi Whittle. Naomi is a pioneer in the beauty and nutrition industries. She has founded several successful wellness brands, is an expert in diet, herbal medicine, and longevity. And Naomi has traveled the world, including Europe and Asia, studying natural health and finding rare exotic superfoods to help people heal and fight disease. She's also made it her personal mission to better the lives of women by empowering them to take control of their health. Naomi is someone I really trust and admire, and I am thrilled to have her here today. I hope you enjoy her wisdom on today's show. Welcome, Lara. You are a naturopathic doctor, and I am so excited to have you here on the Dr. Axe show. Everybody, I'm Naomi Whittle, and I have the great privilege of being able to interview people like Lara. She's written two books. We're going to get right into it all around the health of us as women. So the period repair manual, as well as the hormone repair manual, like my absolute favorite topics. I'm a mother of four, Lara, and um, my eldest child is 19 and uh, she just started college. And so when she got her period and as I'm watching her develop, thinking very much about her hormones and what that means and how we can really support them. So um, very excited to have this conversation. I would just love to have you start by telling us a little bit about your background, like what you got your undergraduate degree in and, and a little bit about you. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. It's really lovely to meet you. So as you can hear from my mixed accent, I'm Canadian originally. Um, I, I now live in New Zealand, which is sort of why I have this <laughs> complicated accent. But my first degree was in evolutionary biology. I worked as an evolutionary biologist. I published a scientific paper in sex differences and foraging behaviors. So mm. I, I came at it all through that path. And then in the early 90s, I trained as a naturopathic doctor in Toronto, Canada, and I've been in full-time practice ever since. I've just, I love working with patients. So I've had almost 25 years of on the ground, you know, nine to five, working with women, finding out what works for them. And as you can imagine, natural treatments, including diet and supplements work very well for the female hormonal system and are obviously, you know, in many cases, preferable to contraceptive drugs, which we can talk about a bit today. This connection between evolutionary biology and then being able to work with patients, writing these books, that to me is like a perfect marriage in the sense of so much of the time, I, I, I mean, I know I can speak for myself, we sort of bump into this evolutionary path that we go through hormonally. Um, and there's so much misconception about pregnancy, about ovulation, about suppressing our ovulation, like you were talking about, yeah. you know, different hormones that we take and how our hormones evolve over time. If you were to, to sort of give us an overview 
evolutionarily as women, how do you look at this hormonal development throughout our lifespan? Okay, there's lots there. Mm. I'm going to start with this, which is to sort of debunk the narrative that female hormones are somehow a liability. I feel like that's often the starting place in our you know, current paradigm. And I reject that. So from an evolutionary perspective, female physiology, female human physiology is normal, obviously. It's actually the standard normal. I, the way I approach it is actually the male physiology is the variant. But what the way our bodies work is the foundation. And we, our bodies work cyclically. So yes, I mean, it is true that our ancestors would have been pregnant a lot more and breastfeeding a lot more, so would not have been cycling as often as we do, but they still were cycling. And so it, obviously our entire physiology is calibrated to a monthly up and down of estrogen and progesterone, which means monthly ovulation and sometimes pregnancy. And we're calibrated to that, which means that that process of ovulation and making those hormones is not just to make a baby. It's, it's how our body works. One of the things I often say is, you know, to state that ovulation is only for making a baby would be like to say for men, you know, testicular function and testosterone is only to make a baby, which is crazy. Cause obviously it's obvious to us how much men are influenced by testosterone, how good it is for them. We're the same. Our own estrogen and progesterone are beneficial for health. And unfortunately, I just have to circle back to contraceptive drugs again. I mean, I call them that because they're not hormones. They're not the same as the hormones we make monthly and when we're pregnant. Obviously, pregnancy is another time of hormone production that is um, beneficial. You talked about testosterone. As a woman, I have learned over many years also the importance of testosterone for us yes. as women. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago, I was interviewing an endocrinologist who was saying how for women, as our, as our testosterone starts to decline, some of the effects are you know, obviously loss in muscle mass, um, fatigue, but also this sense of confusion that can come along with lower levels of testosterone. So I started to work maybe four or five years ago on, on increasing my levels of testosterone and you can do it naturally. And obviously you can do it, you know, um, with different medications and so forth, but just being in tune to progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone, the sex hormones um, equally, and always having thought sort of like testosterone was something that men really focused on. So tell us a bit more about that. Absolutely. So testosterone is one of the hormones we make in our cycle. We get a little, interestingly, in a healthy menstrual cycle, we get a little bump up in testosterone just before ovulation, which the research now suggests is has a huge effect on us because we don't have very much testosterone to start with. So when it goes up even by just a tiny bit, like I think it goes up by about 40% and then back down again, we get, that's why that contributes to the possible euphoria that some women feel just before ovulation. Estrogen is part of that as well. I'll just say for what it's worth, estrogen, estradiol, our main estrogen is anabolic. So it's muscle building as well. Mm -hmm. 
Testosterone, there's a sweet spot, right? Like just a, like a little bit and maintaining good um, androgen levels in general, which would include adrenal androgens and a hormone called DHEA is beneficial for women. It's how we, we make estrogen. We make estrogen from androgens. So that's a big mm. factor as well, especially after, into menopause. But one thing I do want to point out actually is it is possible and actually quite common to have too much testosterone as well. So we, we really need to bring that into it because there's a sweet spot, just enough, a little bit of testosterone is good for mood. It's quite stabilizing for mood. It's, it is beneficial for some of those things you mentioned, but too much testosterone, especially continuously high causes insulin resistance in women. And that's obviously, we see that with PCOS, um, we also see that to some extent in perimenopause. So there's growing research that what I call a testosterone dominance mm -hmm. into the late years of our forties into our fifties contributes to the weight gain around the middle, kind of that shift to a more square body shape. So it's like, like anything, you know, there's a balance, I think. And I just, I would caution people taking testosterone. It's okay to take a little bit for libido or mood, but it really does need to be, especially in menopause, it needs to be balanced with, if you're going to take testosterone, you should definitely also be taking estrogen and progesterone, which have beneficial effects on insulin. I'm sure your audience knows all about insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. Absolutely. So in women, estrogen and progesterone promote insulin sensitivity and above a certain level, testosterone inhibits insulin sensitivity and promotes insulin resistance. Really interesting. So I loved how you sort of started the conversation with the cyclical way yes. in which our bodies work and debunking. So yes. what do you think are some of the largest misconceptions? So let's take your, your, what's your first book, the period repair? Yes. Manual? yes. Okay. So let's yes. say period repair manual. What's the biggest sort of misconception that we as women have about our period. And Lara, if you were to tell us right now, it would have a profound effect on us as women. <laughs> well, I think I have to go to the narrative that pill bleeds are periods. That is one of the craziest things that's happened in medicine in the past 60 to 70 years, this, this idea that, so as you, I mean, as you know, you know, a period is a bleed that occurs two weeks after ovulation. It's part of, it's monthly because of, because ovulation is monthly. When you take the pill or NuvaRing or any of the combined contraceptives, they induce a monthly bleed to mimic a menstrual cycle, but there's no reason to bleed monthly on contraceptive drugs. And so it has created this because one in three women who take the pill, take it to regulate their cycle. Right. And it's not doing that. Like, and so I honestly, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with patients and readers, young women who just like when the penny drops, when they realize they've been taking a drug to have this monthly bleed and it actually doesn't mean anything. It's, it's saying nothing. It's not restoring the health of their hormonal system in any way, in fact, it's doing the opposite. There is often sort of a sense of betrayal or kind of a what the heck mm -hmm. is going on? Like, why have we been, why was I prescribed 
this drug to do that now, which is not to say that contraceptive drugs are not helpful for certain things. They are, of course. I mean, they can help you avoid pregnancy. They can help to manage symptoms. So I just want to say that at the outset, but they don't, the pill doesn't regulate the period. It never could. It was always this sort of strange euphemism. It all kind of started just with this idea of let's dose these drugs to mimic a monthly cycle. And then it, 60 years later, it's, now become entrenched as, yeah, a, a paradigm that this is what it can do. So I guess that's one of my my main messages. Is a few other things going on as part of that. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, um, my uh, doctor, my gynecologist, um, Doctor Felice Gersh. Yes, I know her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, she's. Yeah. I, I can. I always joke. I'm like, you have five encyclopedias inside of that beautiful brain of yeah. yours. Yeah, um, but she says some very strong things about oral contraceptives, such as when um, when someone goes on the pill, they're basically putting their body into a state of menopause by yes. doing that. And um, what are your thoughts around sort of like this whole conversation? So you just you just defined, you know, the the pill bleed is not a period. And Dr. Gersh is saying, you know, it's like putting yourself into menopause. What are your thoughts? Like, what would the message be? Also, from an evolutionary standpoint, as a biologist, what would your message be to someone like um, my daughter, who's 19, you know, and, and sort of thinking about these, these topics? Regular ovulation on purpose, because, you know, at the end of the day, I want to have like really honest conversations. And this is about us getting healthier and being us our, our healthiest versions of ourselves. You know, I've been dedicated to, to my own health journey, my entire life. And, uh, I just want to really get like the nuances of what can transform our health. For sure. Ovulation is how women make hormones. And hormones are highly beneficial to health. At the time that you're making them, they make us stronger and smarter. And, you know, they're they're good for the brain. They're good for muscles. They're good for cardiovascular system. They're good for insulin. They're good for metabolism. They're good for stress response, all of those things. Also, monthly, either monthly exposure to estrogen and progesterone or with a pregnancy, it it helps to build what's called metabolic reserve. I'm sure you know that term. It helps to build our health. I talk about um, with regular ovulation, each and every natural menstrual cycle, ovulatory menstrual cycle is like a deposit into the bank account of long-term health. We know this from the research. There was actually, and I can, we can put the links in the show notes. There was actually a British medical journal. Um, it was actually, it was part of the nurse's health study, the long, this long-term study where they're tracking women over decades. And they found that women who have regular menstrual cycles, natural menstrual cycles live longer. And that women who took the pill, especially at a young age, for whatever combination of reasons are more likely to have an, you know, an earlier death down the track, you know, decades later. And that may not be directly causative. I think some of it is causative There's some correlative things going on there, but we're starting to see a picture emerge that it's, beneficial for general health to have regular ovulatory menstrual cycles. Now, if we're talking about, you know, young women are thinking, well, how am I going to avoid pregnancy then? 
this is, well, let's touch on that. I mean, there are other, there currently are a few, a, a few non-hormonal methods, some methods of avoiding pregnancy that don't involve inducing a temporary chemical menopause. And we'd like to see more. I think actually what needs to happen is there needs to be more research. Most of the hormonal birth control is 70 years old. Like the invention, basically they keep coming up with different delivery methods and slightly different doses of the drugs and slightly different variants of the drugs. But basically they're, they're the same drugs that were invented in the fifties before anyone really even understood how the menstrual cycle works. And just to say again, those contraceptive drugs are not hormones. They are not estradiol and progesterone and they do well, they obviously they have many side effects, so we can, we can go into that. But I guess my message to young women is you can do this. Like you can reclaim your physiology and find a way to cycle naturally and gain all the benefits of your own hormones. It's, it's very doable. I speak from my 25 years of patients, but also with readers all over the world, reclaiming their hormones. And obviously there are, I, you know, I have to acknowledge there are situations such as severe endometriosis where it gets a little more complicated, but for most women, it's doable. So exciting. You know, I, I interviewed this incredible neurophysicist, um, yeah. this, this young woman who decided to become an entrepreneur and she developed an app that has FDA approval that, that manages ovulation as, yeah. as contraceptive. And I know the one I was, yeah. yeah, I was so blown away. So for those of you that are listening to this conversation, there are so many solutions. I mean, and, and I interviewed her probably two years ago. So, I mean, yeah. it continues, it continues to evolve and grow. And I think to your point, like our hormones create this reserve of health. What do yes. we need now more than anything? It's that truly that reserve so that we can optimize our health, optimize our biology, which is um, kind of what you're teaching us right now. Yeah. So I love it. Let's, let's move the conversation into uh, your hormone repair manual. Yes. So let's do the same thing that we just did with the period. repair. Okay. What's the sure. big theme or the big sort of misconception that we as women have that you feel that your book like would debunk? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So period repair manuals for women of any age who yes. have a period or want a period hormone repair manual is for women. I say over 40, over 35, it's all about second puberty or perimenopause, which starts a lot younger than most women realize. And, and there's a couple things going on there. First of all, perimenopause is normal. So nothing to be ashamed of. That's one of my key messages. But from an evolutionary perspective, the myth I want to debunk with this book is that this narrative that menopause is just an accident of living too long. That is not what the evidence shows. And I cite several lines of evidence in the book that menopause evolved. I mean, we're basically looking at... Um, sort of updated archaeological evidence and evidence from modern day forager, you know, hunter-gatherer groups like the Hadza. Um, people have, women lived, it, biologically, we have been living to 70 or 80 years old for a long time, probably for as long as we've been human. 
life expectancy has been lower because unfortunately, historically, lots of us died young from infection or injury or childbirth. So that created an average lower age of death, if that makes sense. But biologically, the human frame has been able to live to 70 or 80. And yet we stop reproducing around 45 or 50. That's that's how it is. And actually, in my in hormone repair manual, I talk about some of the evidence that suggests that intriguingly, a longer human lifespan may have evolved for humans be precisely because post-reproductive women are so valuable to their groups or communities. Basically, the argument that a longer human lifespan for both sexes evolved because of menopause. Because in existing forager groups, women in their 50s, 60s, into their 70s, get a lot done, right? They gather more food than any other age or sex, They and they share most of it with the rest of the group. So they are essential for survival of that group. One of the reasons humans have been able to, for example, have babies quite close together. Young women could do that, having a baby every three years or so was precisely because there were other members in the group to help them. And that included their, their mothers and you know their aunties and the, the older women. It's lovely. Yeah, it's really sweet. I, I just, yeah. I love what it is that you're saying. So when you spoke about giving birth and okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of try to yeah. unpack some of what yeah. you said, and it's fantastic. Uh, let's talk about perimetopause, the, the average time frame when a woman starts perimetopause, how she can learn that she is going through perimetopause, sort of like, let's talk about that first and sure. foremost. So perimetopause is second puberty. So just another thing to say, it's not caused by aging. It's not at all. It's genetically hardwired into, we're, into our blueprint. We're meant to do this. Just as we're meant to go through first puberty, first puberty is not just because your kids are getting older, that it's an event, it's a change. And second puberty or perimenopause is the same. The body has a plan. It's going to revert to a, you know, sort of baseline lower hormone state, which is arguably normal, not a deficiency. If we could talk about that, there's a little bit of um, something called evolutionary mismatch going on, which we can talk about. I mean, we have, we experience symptoms with perimenopause, but traditionally women did not. So we can, we can talk about why our modern lifestyle may be contributing to symptoms. Mm -hmm. But how do women know this is what's going on? A big clue is actually to know at what age your mother or aunties stop their periods, because a lot of it's genetically programmed. Some of it, you can, you could adjust it slightly, like smokers have a slightly earlier perimenopause. Obviously, having chronic illness can bring menopause a little bit earlier. But for most of us, it's around the age our female ancestors went through it. And there's no blood test or anything like that. To, there's a blood test for menopause or early menopause, which is a different right. topic. FSH can be used for that. But like for most of us in our 40s, basically the first thing that happens, and I explain this in Hormone Repair Manual, we start to make less progesterone. That is just the nature of it because progesterone is very hard to make. It's the hormone we make with ovulation. So we just start to not do that as well. There's ways we can try to enhance it, but it's just an inevitability. We're going to shift to what are called anovulatory cycles. And that shift creates, can create, especially in our modern environment, because of evolutionary mismatch, can create symptoms. And so the way you know, and I talk about this in my book, 
the way you know you're in perimenopause is if you're midlife, so 35 or older, and other reasons have been ruled out, and you're experiencing at least three of the nine symptoms that I list, including, you know, reduced ability to cope with stress, increased migraines, sleep, new sleep disturbance, heavier periods, often, not always, but often breast pain, weight gain around the middle, I'm missing a couple there, um, period pain. Yeah, there's a few, couple other in the list of nine. So that's, that's how you can try to orient, orientate how, where you are in that process. It's, um, as you're speaking about this, you know, that step number one, asking your mother, when did she go through it? Yes. It's so key. Um, and I've, I've been, you know, I've heard that for a very long time. And Dr. Mesh Seibel, I don't know if you know of him. Uh, he talks about this window, this five-year window. So on average, most women will go through perimenopause. It will start about age 47 and they'll get into menopause about 51. So this window is in his mind, from what he shared, is sort of like this health crisis, meaning that oh, yeah. we need to really sort of build ourselves up so that as we're going through those changes, we're as strong as possible. And I love, love, love that you say it's like second puberty because yeah. we think of puberty in a very positive light. And I would love for us to also, you know, for, for women who are getting ready to go into this stage or for women that are in it, or for women that are now past, you know, they're, they're past yep. that menopause. Yep. All of us, po the post-menopause, all groups have that sense of respect and love and excitement and, and understanding that, just like you said, this is not part of aging. This is genetic. This is what we're doing as women. And that women in their 50s and 60s are really getting into their prime. And so how do we build up so that we're in our strongest time during those years yes. and understanding yeah. and appreciating what we can bring to the table for ourselves and those around us? Yeah. In, in the book, I use the phrasing of my colleague, um, Professor Gerilyn Pryor. She's a en Canadian endocrinologist. She's been very influential in my work. She helped me with both books. She talks about graduating to menopause or achieving menopause. So achieving that post-reproductive state as arguably, well, a beneficial, well, I mean, beneficial might be a bit strong, but as an important place to be, it's where we're headed. And in my book, I talk about um, menopause as second girlhood or this sort of, there is, there definitely is this for some of us, and because I'm just about to graduate to menopause, I think there is this kind of sense of it's, I don't know, I describe it, it's a mix of for me of wanting to spend more time outside, kind of shirking some of my duties. At the same time, obviously, I have still responsibilities that I attend to, but it is a real sense of, you know, I just don't care about some of this stuff that I used to. And it's very liberating. And I had heard about it from my patients for decades and never really got it till you sort of get here yourself. It's it's a mix of yeah, it's it's a it's a mix of a few things, including um, to some extent the invisibility that you know gets is arguably sort of a bad thing about menopause. You're you know you're not potentially. I mean, I think we're still attractive in menopause, but we're not in that mode of being as much as 
you know, a sort of sexual attractiveness. And there's something liberating about that, actually. It's, it's, uh, it can be kind of a fun time. So that's, you know, one that's just responding to your reclaiming menopause. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, um, sort of like a secret party. It's like everyone, I think young women and men kind of all fear menopause. It's this bad thing. But once you actually get there, it's like, oh yeah, there's, this is actually okay. And you, you know, you, you, you only know that with the women that you share the space with. And I don't know at the end, if you saw that um, little bit at the end of hormone repair manual, I have a little excerpt from Fleabag Mm. where it's the, it's the monologue from Kristen Scott Thomas talking about, yeah, menopause is, kind of the transition is kind of horrible but then once you get there it's fantastic so i think she claims she embodies some of that in that speech it's it's kind of an exciting place to be it's really exciting and you're seeing it yeah. you're seeing it in 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 media right now you know like how yeah. many vibrant gorgeous healthy strong women yeah are there in their early 50s that yeah. are you know, really looked at from every angle as, as feminine in, in every single way, which, you know, there's been so much misconception around what we should look like or feel like, or behave like during that time. And, and, and certainly we are evolving at, 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 in different ways right now with technology and the world that we live in. It's, it is a really interesting time to be alive and to be going through these these transformations within our own bodies um, that are also obviously impacted by various foods that we eat, plants that we incorporate into our diet, nutrients. Hey guys, a lot of people ask me what supplements I take regularly. And one of the top three products I take every single day is SBO Probiotics from Ancient Nutrition. It's the whole food supplement brand I co-founded with Jordan Rubin. Now I talk about my passion for SBOs, also known as soil-based organisms frequently. In general, SBO probiotics are so important because they are shelf-stable probiotics that are naturally resistant to the harsh environment of our upper digestive tract and our stomach. Now, Ancient Nutrition's SBO probiotics support a healthy digestive system and your immune system. Plus, we add superfoods and herbs for an extra boost. And by the way, that's key. The herbs with the probiotics together, that's the ancient way to create a healthy gut and digestive system. Check out Ancient Nutrition's SBO probiotics online or in store today. You speak about menopause being genetic. Can we talk a little bit about epigenetics? Um, sure. Influencing metabolism. Sure. Okay, so we're getting into the territory now of the evolutionary mismatch that I re- alluded to. I'm also going to circle back to yeah that comment you had from one of your previous guests about the perimenopause transition as quite a critical window. It is. Mm. It's a tipping point for health, not to overstate it, but it really is. It's kind of a, it's a time of opportunity for health and it's a dangerous time for health too, because it's a time of transition. So any times of strong hormonal change, any window like that, that would be puberty, postpartum, perimenopause, 
is a time, and we know this from the literature, of reduced, or sorry, increased risk of, for example, mental health symptoms and even mental health diagnoses, kind of more serious ones. It's their increased time, their times of increased risk of um, immune, autoimmune onset of autoimmune disease, which is actually quite a big deal because women are, as you know, more commonly experience autoimmune disease. And I talk in my book about how it's a, it's this critical window for health because it's a time when the whole body and brain, especially the brain are recalibrating. Mm. So it's like the analogy, one of the analogies I use in the book, it's like when your computer is doing a software update and it says, do not turn off the computer. Do not make like, just let it do its thing. So this is what we have to do during perimenopause is try to support our body in doing its thing. It's rewiring and we can come out the other side healthy, or unfortunately we can come out the other side on the track to various conditions. And some of those, it could be autoimmune disease. It could be um, metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular risk from the insulin resistance that typically worsens at insulin at sorry at, at perimenopause and the later stages of perimenopause and it could be brain things so i just want to touch on this what the emerging research around the female brain and this is coming from a couple of researchers lisa Moscone and roberta brinton who i quote in the book they've worked together on this to identify that in many cases dementia can begin in menopause so I know it sounds scary to talk about this, but I think it's also important because it's an opportunity. Again, it's an opportunity to not go down that path. So yeah, why is this happening? Why is, why is what should, is a net, what is, you know, a natural change that we evolved to do this shift to post-reproductive and a shift back to lower hormones? Why is that a risk factor for disease? Why is that associated with symptoms? I'm convinced it's a classic case of evolutionary mismatch. So do your, do your viewers kind of know that concept? It's this idea that it's- Talk yeah. to us about it. Talk to us about it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for us to all like hear about this mismatch. And then also to have you start to bring in what kind of things can we do to strengthen, right? So like these sure. are the foods- that will really For be sure. supportive. These are the nutrients that we need to be thinking about. I, I, you know, I've, I've heard time and time again about what you said with dementia starting like at that yes. time. And when I, I had my whole genome um, analyzed a couple of years ago and because I personally have autoimmune issues, I've spent several years on a high fat. I did keto for many years. I love reducing the inflammation in my body. Everybody's different. We all have different ways that work the best for us. But for me, eating fat as my primary sources of fuel helped my immune health so much and reduced so yeah. much inflammation in my brain throughout my body that it was like my diet is preventative toward predispositions that I may have. So I'm really excited to have you teach us what kinds yeah. of foods and nutrients we should be taking. Okay. So let's talk about the recalibration process. And I might just, so there's obviously there's different recalibrations happening. There's an immune recalibration. So mm -hmm. that's the whole autoimmune 
bit, which you might circle back to, but I'm as a case study, as an example, I'm going to use the metabolic recalibration that happens later in perimenopause. So kind of around the time of our final period and just after our final period, we at that point, we do finally experience a drop in estradiol. Whereas earlier in perimenopause, we're actually having high levels of estradiol, which is another story. But at some point, we do move into the territory of lower estrogen. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that does is impair and reduce insulin sensitivity. So it reduces the mitochondria's ability to use glucose for energy. Mm-hmm. And what has to happen for the healthy recalibration for this process is the what's called metabolic flexibility. The cells have to shift to using more ketones. They have to be able to access ketones for energy. Now, as you can imagine, in our hunter-gatherer ancestors, that was not a problem because right. the food environment was such that nobody had insulin resistance. I mean, they're local, they're in a low-calorie environment, basically. And yes, they would have been eating a lot of potentially a lot more sort of meat and fatty foods. And so that's kind of the background. But in our modern food environment, because of a lot of the processed food and the carbohydrate and the sugar and the vegetable oils and all of that, we are, it's the odds are stacked against us in terms of that metabolic flexibility. And so, and I talk about food environment, just it's not so much blaming or finger wagging people for eating the wrong thing. I mean, this is the, this is the, we're animals living in this environment. This is what we're the food that we're given that we eat. And so unfortunately that's very unfriendly to metabolic flexibility. And so if the brain cannot make this shift to ketones, not exclusively ketones, but it has to be going back and forth and using more ketones, especially into menopause, then that is putting, that's one of the factors that's putting the brain down the path to, to dementia. In fact, one of the quotes from Roberta Brinton, one of the researchers, I have this reference where she said this, it was one of those moments. I remember where I was sitting when I read this piece of information she gave. She basically said in this process, because of low estrogen, this, you know, imperative to be able to use ketones. If the body is not providing the ketones from body fats or from diets, And usually if it's not doing that, it's because of insulin resistance. I hope that makes sense. If the ketones are not readily available to the brain, the brain cells have no choice but to resort to cannibalizing Mm. myelin. Myelin is the healthy, all the the nearby myelin to gain ketones to have energy because they have to. Like what um, the two researchers have measured is an up to 25% drop in brain energy with this drop in estrogen, it's, it's temporary while the brain tries to recalibrate and get ketones going, but a 25% drop in brain energy is pretty significant. They measure this by looking at how the metabolically, how the brain lights up. Mm -hmm. So the brain is starving. It's in a temporary energy crisis and that contributes to the brain fog that contributes to all of the neurological symptoms. So, and I, you, you, in my book, I talk about this quite a lot and I do, this is why I build the case number one thing for brain health is to not have insulin resistance, to identify insulin resistance and then reverse it, which is completely doable with different strategies. I mean, a kind of a shift to a lower carb is, can be part of that. It's not the only thing that needs to happen, but it, it can be huge for the brain. And the other thing I want to say about this 
I love this. This is such an awesome conversation. Wow. Thank you. This is where estrogen therapy comes into play a little bit here. So this is a whole other topic, obviously, whether you take menopausal hormone therapy or not. And I talk about it in the book. I'm, I'm quite a, I'm sort of quite neutral about, oh, well, you know, I think hormone therapy can be beneficial for some people. I don't think everyone needs it, but one thing, a little nuanced point about this, I want to make the women who benefit the most from taking estrogen in menopause are women with insulin resistance because estrogen sensitizes cells to insulin. So if you've already, if you're metabolically not doing that great, then estrogen is going to give you more benefit Hmm. than it would to a woman who's metabolically quite healthy, if that makes sense. So this is, so I guess my point being, you can take estrogen if you feel better on it, like it's, but also know that there's other things you need to do to build that metabolic flexibility. Estrogen isn't the only thing that can help with that. And I think this is why this, like how estrogen is more beneficial to women with metabolic syndrome, I think is why the research is quite conflicting and mixed. Like they'll say, you know, hormone therapy, estrogen therapy, like they'll say, oh, it prevents, you know, prevents heart disease and some of these downstream things from metabolic syndrome. And then like, oh no, it doesn't. Like they're kind of like, it's because I think if they would separate out the, the data set and the population and actually factor in metabolic health as a variable, you would see a much clearer picture emerge. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, Lara, it's uh, metabolic flexibility, metabolic syndrome, metabolic health in general yep. is the sort of, in my mind, foundational to all of our health. You know, I um, yep. my, my second book uh, that I wrote, High Fiber Keto, was really... Uh, a book about metabolism. And there's yep. so much misconception understanding like, oh, the brain, you know, is metabolic, like this whole body metabolism that goes on. And it's not just about weight. And so, and there's so no. much to it. I went to, um, I went to Cameroon, West Africa, a year ago, October, because mm-hmm. I, because what I do is I, you know, I, I, I really, as I mentioned to you before we started talking, I, I go all over the world and I find the ingredients that really can like transform our health. So in New Zealand, where you live, I'm sure there are so many nutrients and ingredients and foods that, that are part of the tradition that here in the U S we've never heard of anyway, in Cameroon, in West Africa, there's this super fruit that grows and I call it spice fruit. It's way up in the trees. It's sort of like the turmeric of, of India. Uh, Mm -hmm. They use it in their food every single day. Mm -hmm. And I went over there because there's this researcher that's been working with metabolic health for 35 years. He's one of the four fathers of sort of metabolic research, Dr. Oben, Julius Oben. And I went over there to not just meet with the farmers, but really to sort of understand the research that he had around metabolic health. And what blew my mind away was all of the misconceptions that we have about how these African, West Africans live and what they eat and so forth. And what was most impressive is regardless of the the shape 
or the look of a person, these individuals were metabolically fit. And it just was so mind blowing. It's like, I look around here in North America, and I don't know if Canada is the same, but 70, 80, 90% of us are at a metabolic disadvantage. So when you're talking about this metabolic flexibility and being able to utilize more ketones, us understanding that like what we're putting into our mouths, the foods that we're eating, the amount of this macronutrient versus that macronutrient has such a huge impact on the way our metabolisms work and how we become flexible. It's really empowering because it's not that hard to do, right? Like we can shift what it is that we eat. Talk to us about some of the nutrients, right? Like we can talk about the foods, like the bone broth, the MCTs. Um, When I make my salad dressing, I use MCT. Like I'm always trying to have more fat than carbohydrates. I try to keep my carbs low. I try to keep them at like 50 grams. That's when I have the most brain energy. You talked about 24, 25%. Yes, all the time, right? What are the nutrients? So there's lots of roads to metabolic flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I guess with my own patients and in my book, I do often start with protein. I just want to mention it because of something called the protein leverage hypothesis, which mm-hmm. you may know about yeah. protein, amino acids, not just protein generically, but, um, you know, amino acids specifically are our primary appetite. And so very often step number one is to satisfy that because if you d- the, what the protein leverage hypothesis states is that because it's um, humans' main appetite, pro- most mammals, protein is the main appetite, not all mammals, which is interesting. So there's a bit of variation between species, but we're in that we work, you know, prote- amino acids are our primary driver. What the protein leverage hypothesis states is that because appetite is driven by amino acids, um, people will keep eating until they obtain all of the amino acids they need. So if you're on a high carb, low protein diet, you will literally, you'll have no choice because you're an animal. Like you can't control it by, with willpower or your brain or anything like that. You will have to keep eating. And that can be um, what are called protein decoy foods. So crave like foods, like high carb foods that are high in umami, like chips and things like that will crave. So very often with my own patients, I'm like, satisfy your body's amino acids requirements first, because that'll make you feel so good. And then you can start, then you won't, then you don't have to like force yourself to not have dessert, right? Like you'll be a lot, you'll feel a lot better about just not having the foods. I'd say in terms of foods to avoid, I'd say the top two, I'm sure you'd agree would be vegetable oils because they're just quite damaging to metabolism. And uh, so that would be high omega-6 trans fat, obviously that whole category. And high dose fructose. I do want to bring this in. I'm on board with, you know, lower carbon overall. I think that can be quite beneficial. A lot of my patients don't, well, there seems to be some confusion with some people around sugar. Like most people kind of, when they think carbs, they think potatoes or rice or something like that. My first, because there is a lot of sugar binging going on. And if you're listening and that's you, I, you know, hand on heart, I feel for you. I get it. Many, many, many. Yeah. And actually true sugar addicts don't want to talk about it. It's very shameful. It's, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. And sugar addiction is partly physiological. It's partly driven by insulin resistance and gut problems and all kinds of things. So if that's you, 
always reaching for sugar, hiding it from your loved ones, just please know you can get help for that. There is a way out of that. And there is a future of not craving sugar. And it's hard to imagine, but like, like I say to patients, they'll be, the day will come and it's only a few months away when you won't find it torture to avoid sugar. You just be like, oh, that's fine. I don't need it. I feel good. I feel satisfied. I feel happy. And I don't need that soft drink or the dried, like the smoothie or the dried fruit or all because fructose, high dose fructose, as you probably know, is toxic to mitochondria. It's part of the problem with our modern food environment, one of several problems, but the just overload of fructose is very damaging metabolically and which is different than a normal low amount of fructose that would come in in just, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables that our ancestors would have been eating. That, that's actually fine. A lot of it's to do with how fructose is metabolized in the gut and above a certain threshold, it becomes toxic. So that's kind of my summary of, um, I guess, in terms of macronutrients. I also just want to touch up on alcohol, actually, because I find alcohol, this, we're a little bit outside of the metabolic syndrome conversation with that, but the brain is recalibrating and alcohol is a brain toxin. Alcohol is really not friendly to the perimenopausal brain, unfortunately. And I just always have to make that point while I'm thinking about it because actually quitting alcohol can make a huge difference to hot flashes, you know, night sweats, all the perimenopausal symptoms. It's wonderful. So I love, I love where this conversation took us. Favorite topic, metabolic flexibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. Such an empowering concept both in period repair manual and the hormone repair manual, it sounds to me like you're really bringing this evolutionary aspect of I'm not alone in this. This is something yes. that, you know, has, is part of how we evolve as humans. There's so many nuances to what you've shared with us. That's just like really super empowering. And that's, you know, that's really my goal in hosting um, the Dr. Axe podcast. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've, I, as a woman, have always looked at the amount of responsibility, like you spoke about earlier, the amount of responsibility, the amount of nurture that we do evolutionarily is, is so important to not only our families, but the world at large. And yep. so, nurturing ourselves. I remember, you know, many, many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I wrote a piece on, you know, we all know we put our oxygen masks on first um, on the airplane. And I got a lot of pushback many, many years ago about that, like that selfish and so forth, but, but truly self-care is overall care and learning these these important aspects of how we can optimize our biology is just mm -hmm. totally transformational. So mm -hmm. I'm imagining that you've changed many women um, who are listening to this and, and the men that are listening to this and how they can support the women in their lives during all of these different exciting phases mm -hmm. of our lives. So how do we we're going to put in, in our show notes how we can find you on social media, your books, period repair manual, hormone repair manual, must reads. Are there any other sort of like uh, last thing, leaving thoughts that you just want to share with the audience? This is something I say a lot at the end of interviews. It's just, it's, is to one of my key messages is to trust your body 
Mm. You know, women's health is not as, as mysterious or complicated as it's been made out to be. The body knows what to do. I truly believe that as a biologist and a clinician, if you can give it the right support, it will, most symptoms can improve. So I guess that's just to give hope. I know everyone's sitting there listening, thinking, oh, but that might be true, but I'm different because my situation is a lot more complicated. Let me just tell you, I've heard it all. Like I've had obviously had patients with very complicated health conditions. There's always a way through to feeling better than you do. And that's true also with you know female the female hormonal system. It's our inheritance. It's our birthright. It's what we... It, it, you know, female hormones coming back to what we said at the beginning, female hormones are an asset, not a liability. Oh, I love it. I literally could probably sit here and speak with you for 10 or 12 hours easily. I mean, you're just an incredible wealth of knowledge and thank you for sharing the, the points in, in your education and your experience that really have stood out with you and sharing that with us. It's like taking your 25 years plus <laughs> and, and really giving us like, these are some highlights that are, that are powerful and informative. So yeah. it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. It's been really great to talk to you, Naomi. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you once again. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Make sure to go to my recent Instagram post and let me know what your favorite part of the show was. Also, don't forget to follow me at Dr. Josh Axe there on Insta, where I cover the latest health trends, natural medicine, and so much more. Also, if you're loving this podcast, do me a big favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Thanks so much for being on mission with me. See you next week. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. In some cases, individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein.